I moved to Victoria in the middle of September 2018, and it was very difficult to find an affordable place to live. And I wasn't the only one. In fact, it seemed like everyone who was already living in Victoria was also struggling to find a decently priced place to live. $700, mature student looking for a place to live my best life. $18.95 a month for a brand new ultra-modern super trendy building, one bed fully furnished available now. $2,050 beautiful furnished apartment in Oasis. Bay in Quadra, three bedroom, $2,000. Located in the vibrant heart of Victoria, the Napoleon Suite leaves nothing more five minutes from your fingertips. $800 community-minded roomy wanted. $900 one bedroom available in James Bay now or July 1st. Cozy basement suite. Includes gym access and an in-unit washer dryer. So I would answer an ad and then an hour later get a response saying it was already taken or I wouldn't hear back at all. And this went on for almost a month. Bottom line is everyone wants to live in Victoria and it's super competitive. And whenever I ask anyone about this, I would nine times out of 10 be told about the affordable housing crisis. This is All Access on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, broadcasting from the Husanich and Songhees territories of the Sinchothan and Lekwungen-speaking peoples, whose relationship with the land continues to this day. On this episode, we hope to find out how the affordable housing crisis happened and learn about how it's affecting musicians living in Victoria. Why don't you just start by introducing yourself? Okay. Uh, well, so I, I, I'll tell you to call me Martin. But, yeah. Uh, um, I'm Martin Farnham, and I'm an associate professor of economics at University of Victoria. And uh, how long have you been at the university for? I think I'm coming up to 15 years in July. And Martin has lived in Victoria for all of those 15-ish years. Yeah, I've been in Victoria, a Victoria resident the entire time. Okay, so I'm just kind of curious of what your opinion is regarding the the housing market here, given your background and kind of like your years spent here. Right, um, so it's, uh, it's an expensive housing market mm-hmm. uh, compared to others um, across North America. Um, of course, I've lived in some pretty expensive places, so I actually grew up in Silicon Valley in California and uh, went uh, after I was an undergrad, I lived in New York City for a while. So these were very expensive housing markets. Um, but Victoria is definitely uh, a high-end housing market. And the answer to why Victoria has become one of these markets is pretty simple. It all boils down to supply and demand. So if we take a look at the supply side... We're kind of geographically constrained. Almost trapped, really. There's a lot of water hemming us in and rugged rugged mountains. And, and um, so that plus local politics um, tends to kind of keep the supply side constrained. And the supply, the lack of supply is what causes those prices to kind of steadily rise over the years? Yeah, it's the combination of um, increasing demand as increasing numbers of people want to move here, uh, oftentimes wealthy retirees, um, and the fact that we aren't great at building a um, a lot of new housing. And the reason we aren't great at building new housing mostly has to do with the local politics of Victoria, It's kind of a mess because Greater Victoria is made up of 13 different municipalities, 
Saanich, Victoria, Langford, Oak, Oak Bay, Bay, Esquimalt, Colwood, Central Saanich, Souk, Souk, Sydney, North Saanich, View Royal, Machosan, Highlands. And because there are so many, they have a really hard time coordinating. Yeah, so if you were to th- um, suppose that everybody's concerned about housing affordability, right? Um, then we might want to go about solving that problem. Um, but there's kind of a free rider problem. Uh, if you think about living uh, in a house where you live alone, uh, if you value a clean kitchen, then you've got a pretty strong incentive to clean the kitchen. Uh, if you have one roommate and you both value a clean kitchen, um, you each have an incentive um, to do something about the kitchen, but you also realize in the back of your head that maybe the other person will take care of it. Um, if you have five roommates, uh, the kitchen's going to be a complete mess. And so um, if you think about having 13 municipalities in Greater Victoria, it could be that everybody would actually like to do something about housing affordability. Um, but this is going to cost something uh, for each municipality that would actually do something about it. So it's going to possibly take some extra tax dollars. Um, And one really big cost is that um, uh, people tend to kind of value the character of their neighborhoods. They're not usually happy about a bunch of affordable housing suddenly being put up around them. Basically, even if the municipalities were to coordinate on this problem, there's this not-in-my-backyard mindset that makes it very difficult for affordable housing to actually happen. Meanwhile, more and more people are deciding to move here, and it turns out there's also a simple reason for that. So I think a lot of people who are looking for a nice place to retire, um, they like the kind of mid-sized city feel of Victoria. According to the 2016 census... Victoria has the fifth oldest population in all of Canada. But can you blame them? It's an amazing city. Even Martin agrees. It's got really nice amenities. Tons of them. Uh, A lot of people want to live here because it's got, you know, arguably the best weather in Canada. It hardly snows. So there's lots of great outdoor stuff to do. Anybody want to go hike five mountains, then do a 40k bike along the ocean? Maybe we can go paddle boarding and then kite surf. And then my friend wants to go sailing and then we can just, I don't know, kayak home. It's got a lot going for it. Plus, it's not as busy as the bigger cities, but still has this vibrant downtown scene that actually thrives on having an older population. One of the staples of downtown Victoria is the symphony orchestra. But even this large, incredibly popular organization has been affected by these yes, rising I, prices. I, I, say, I would say that all of us were shocked when we opened our letters. This is Catherine Lauren, and she is the CEO of the Victoria Symphony. And I've been here for three years, and I have the distinct pleasure and honor of working with a wonderful group of professional and extremely talented musicians. Just to pump the brakes right here... Um, Before I can tell you what was in that letter, it's important that we go back and talk about the relationship between the symphony and the place where it performs over 50% of their recitals, the Royal Theatre. So um, backing up, um, we have, to be fair, we had been in some conversations with the Royal Theatre for maybe even eight months, in a very informal way. We were getting signals from the theater that they were suggesting to us that, you know, they were subsidizing us and that we should expect some rate increases uh, and so on. 
And by we, Catherine is talking about the three main performing art organizations that use the theater. It's the symphony, it's the opera, so Pacific Opera Victoria, mm-hmm. and Dance Victoria. And so we call ourselves the user group. And the user group is a big deal because they basically keep the Royal Theatre profitable. In fact, they generate 74% of all of the Royal Theatre's revenue. So they're a pretty good fit for each other. Yeah, it's really been a great thing. We worked a couple of uh, summers ago, we worked with uh, one of the um, refugee societies. They brought in Nelly Furtado. Oh, really? She's from and, here, right? Yes, she is. Yeah. Yes. And uh, we offered up a couple of our services for free so that we could perform with her um, in a concert. And it was all, it was a fundraising activity. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we were really happy to be able to participate in that and support Mm -hmm. our community. And yeah, so it was a lot of fun. And we work extremely well together. And they have been for 75 years. There was even a time when no one was coming to the Royal Theatre So they phoned the symphony and said, Listen, can you guys please come and do some of your concerts here? Because, like, there's nothing happening. And uh, so, you know, we've had a long-standing relationship with them. So once a year, everyone sits down and they have a talk. Sort of a gentleman's conversation because we're all in the Royal Theatre. Just to check in and make sure everyone is on the same page. And so uh, it, the signals were coming to all three organizations that, you know, that there were issues with, um, with rent. So we've had, we did have some dialogue back and forth. And in fact, each of our organizations had a, the opportunity to meet twice mm-hmm. with uh, representatives from the board of the Royal Theatre uh, to have some conversations. And these conversations went fairly well. So we understand if your costs are going up, I mean, that it's, it's a fact of life. Yeah. And so we were not opposed to some moderate increases. And so we suggested that why don't we phase those increases in over a three-year period. So the user group submits this counter-proposal and waits to hear back from the Royal Theatre. And they keep waiting. And waiting. And waiting. And they keep waiting. And waiting. So we heard nothing back from our proposal, our counter-proposal. That was in May. And so by the end of October, beginning of November, each of our organizations received another letter from the Royal Theatre Board. So Catherine is holding this letter in her hands and has no idea what it's going to say. I like to imagine that it sits on her desk for a bit as she tries to sort out the last few details on some future performance, maybe involving Nelly Furtado. Uh, But she keeps looking over at it and going back to work and then looking back at it. And finally, she closes the Nelly email and just tears it open using a letter opener that resembles a violin bow or something. And she reads it. And it's devastating. And in that letter, that's when they clearly indicated that the rent would, in fact, increase by 100%. And um, also, what we hadn't really talked about in too much detail was the whole issue of access. Their counterproposal had been completely ignored. And on top of that, they were basically being kicked out of the theater on certain nights. 
the access was so restrictive that we weren't going to be able to put on some of our concerts without appropriate rehearsal time in that theater, mm -hmm. without paying an astronomical amount of money. And uh, this was making it really impossible for us to continue under the same model. So my board had a really fulsome discussion and really there were two choices that they had, uh, there were two scenarios that they had to examine. One was, well, we could do the stay and pay option, which was so expensive it would put us into debt. And the other option kind of went against the tradition of symphonies, as well as the entire history of the organization. It was to leave the building that had housed them for the last 75 years. They've been, in essence, our designated home. Mm -hmm. And typically across the country, any orchestra or opera company has a designated home, designated facility where they present the majority of their concerts. And we and the opera have certainly viewed the Royal Theatre as our home. Mm -hmm. So after a really thorough discussion and conversation, the board unanimously said, we do not want to go into debt. So um, <laughs> it's option two. Yeah. Right, which is, um, yeah, move, pull out some of the concerts and go to UVic. UVic was offering much more reasonable rental prices, but this left so many logistics to resolve before the beginning of the summer season, as well as the burning question, why did the theatre choose to do this? You might say, look, we respectfully agree to disagree, but let's continue the dialogue. I think when the dialogue breaks down, it's a recipe for failure. Mm -hmm. And so I would say in this instance, the communication hasn't been great. Uh, we have not been listened to uh, or considered. And after 75 years where you think you have a partnership, you know, that's quite disappointing. So the communication is critical. So we were really surprised as to where this had all come from. And... You know, for a while, in the informal conversations, we were led to believe that the Royal Theatre had some financial issues. Which made sense. And it turns out the theatre was restricting access to certain dates to allow bigger touring, more Broadway-like productions to come into Victoria. And they can generate a lot of interest. We then subsequently saw their year-end reports where they were posting, certainly in the last two years, they posted pretty significant surpluses, mm -hmm. like very significant. They were absolutely profitable in the six figures. Mm -hmm. So we realized that it, it was not a financial issue and we have really challenged them on that. And um, we think it's really, it's a more ideological in that they really want to open up the theater for more commercial productions, mm -hmm. i.e. bring in The King and I or The Big Show Chicago. These are all a, a U.S traveling productions mm -hmm. that kind of show up for, you know, five performances and they're gone. And this ideological shift comes across as a slap to the face of the symphony and to the city of Victoria. They don't support local artists. They don't contribute to the local economy in the same way that our organizations do. You know, mm -hmm. we're fostering and promoting emerging artists and local national artists, um, which those touring shows are not doing. These bigger productions have been going on for the last two years, and they are extremely good for business. Catherine suspects that they are the reason why the theater is so profitable and why they're being forced out. And this kind of begs the question of, what is the role of a venue in an increasingly expensive real estate market? Is it to support the local arts? Or is it to survive? 
And while Catherine believes the implications of this relocation are detrimental to the city's local artists, Martin doesn't suspect much of a change in terms of the economics. I don't see that changing a lot of um, people's decisions about where to live in, in the greater Victoria area. I think the people living downtown will continue to live downtown. Um, keep in mind that those concerts that would have happened downtown will be replaced by whatever higher paying acts move in. Um, to the Royal Theatre or wherever the, the symphony was playing. Um, so the mix of entertainment opportunities might change. I don't see that having a major impact on, you know, what restaurants are downtown or what, uh, who's deciding to live downtown or anything like that. When I last spoke to Catherine, she was still working out what the relocation to UVic would look like. It's been a challenge, but she's confident that the performances will be amazing and worth the trip to Saanich. Time will tell how this shift will affect the city. The symphony is one of the larger victims of the increasing prices and rental fees in Victoria. But many local musicians are also affected. Here's Martin again. So there's this interesting problem that musicians um, have in that uh, there's this kind of whole creative class that we can think about of being kind of musicians and artists and designers and inventors and people like that. And these people, um, they need other people like them around in order to do what they do. So in order to get good new ideas, you need to be talking to people about your ideas and you need to be performing for each other. So this is kind of exchange of ideas that happens best when you're in a, a cluster with a bunch of other creative people. Um, and uh, so uh, this often means kind of being at the center of a city, and yet uh, musicians and artists don't make a lot of money. Most local musicians might be able to play one or two shows a month, and those shows don't actually pay that much. So you have this creative class balancing the arts with their day job, which is why these people strive to make their home a creative hub. So you've got these relatively poor creative types um, who really need to be at the kind of the heart of a city in order to do what, to do best what they want to do. Um, and of course, that's where the real estate is the most expensive. Um, so uh, the, the, fortunately, the, the starving artist has kind of a, a time-tested uh, trick for, for getting around this problem. And the trick is kind of unexpected. It's to go after the expense of real estate. And you might think, well, how would a musician ever go up against a rich person uh, in, a, in a bidding war for, for an apartment? Um, musicians and other artists are often willing to live in pretty cramped quarters. Right. And so the, the fact that they're willing to um, uh, kind of uh, shoehorn themselves, several of them into an apartment that was maybe only de designed for a couple people, uh, it kind of it collectively, their purchasing power can actually rise to a level a level that allows them to outbid those wealthier users. I imagine a group of like seven metalheads all raising one of those bidding paddles at a Sotheby's auction, and the rest of the auction is just completely stunned. There's a wealthy lady fanning herself as the auctioneer says, "Going once, going twice, sold to the death metal band called Hospital Bombers." And then he bangs the gaffel and a man with a monocle faints and the band celebrates their new four-bedroom duplex. But, you know, uh, if you're going to be a cutting-edge artist, you're not supposed to be living very comfortably, are you? No, I guess that's kind of taboo at that point. Right, right. <laughs> All right, upstairs we go? Yeah. Do you want, like, a, an alias or a code name for, like, the interview? 
Have you been um, thinking about one? No, I haven't. I mean, like, what's something that like, they would be in, a, in like, a military movie? I don't know. Like, overwhelmed with the possibility of what my army nickname would be. <laughs> um, <sighs> like, buzzard or something. Buzzard? Like a gross bird. <laughs> All right, buzzard. Uh-huh. That's got a nice ring to it. I think so. And it's not overdone, you know? No, it's not. No. Okay, sweet. You are buzzard. So this is buzzard. This is a really cool space, by the way. Um, uh, it's we call it the Railhouse. Why is it called the Railhouse? Um, the joke is that rail is kind of a slang for like cocaine, but it's actually because uh, one of the roommates drinks a lot of ginger ale, so there's always ginger ale bottles everywhere. Um, so we thought it'd be funny to have kind of like the name that maybe like a a, a house that you would think oh like maybe like drug dealers or gang members live there, but it's actually ginger ale because yeah, so that's why it's called that. Yeah. <laughs> and Buzzard the drummer who's been living at the Railhouse for a year. Almost approaching a year, yeah. And it turns out that drummers are kind of in high demand. Yeah, and everyone wants you and that's the case like through adulthood and and forever. Like it's I always I definitely joked that like after I play a show, it's like the guitarist and the lead singer and stuff, it's always like um maybe like, you know, beautiful women or people, you know, inviting them to cool after parties and I get Hey man, I got this new project I'm starting. Like you can be, I'm like, oh my god, like every single time. And Buzzard believes this is the case for two reasons. Most people, most people don't play the drums if they uh, enjoy having a, a full bank account and <laughs> don't like carrying heavy things all the time. So drum kits are expensive and super awkward to be constantly moving around. So Buzzard and his old roommates had an idea that many bands have done before: turn their house into a jam space. But then they decided to take it a step further and started renting it out to other bands. So now the drum kit stays at the house and they're making some money. Conundrum solved. The only problem is that this isn't technically legal. I, I think like it, it could. Yes and no. I think um, like there's loopholes. Right. Like if we, I think if we were to consider what we charge the bands like a donation... Mm-hmm. opposed to a like fee then i think then it, it it's like a gray area it's the same for when people do like house concerts and things like that like if you're doing a house concert you can't call it you can't say oh it's ten dollars at the door um you can but however you can say oh it's like a suggested donation of ten dollars you also can't publicly advertise so if we were publicly advertising like oh hey like we're operating a rehearsal space then we'd be a business but if we keep it um word to like word of mouth i think then it's like it's not as big an issue um, but I'm not well-versed enough, hence why I'm buzzard for this evening, and this evening only. <laughs> and because of this, the Railhouse relies on word of mouth to get bands. Well, between the musicians that live here, right. there are three bands, so we'll rehearse between you know regularly and semi-regularly, and then there will be, I guess, four bands between the people that live here. Um, and then there's probably... Four or three weekly additional bands where like they don't live here, mm-hmm. but we supply them the space, and then they'll be kind of one-offs. If someone's like, "Oh, hey, I got this new thing. We like just need a spot to jam," we're like, "Oh, we know Fridays for you guys can have it." So, but as far as like regularly, there's pro- yeah about like there's music in our basement probably five to six days a week, depending on the week. But 
at the end of the day, we also do enjoy a bit of peace and quiet here and there. So we're not we're not like soliciting new bands to rehearse here. And despite the convenience factor for Buzzard and his roommates' own projects, this jam space serves an important role for other bands because it can be so hard for a band to even begin to afford a rehearsal space. Some like proper rehearsal spaces could go for you know like thirty bucks an hour even. Right. So if you're looking for you know just even a a two hour jam, you know every week that's like sixty bucks, and then using other people's gear and it's weird and then you've you know maybe you're only if you're a new band like you're playing a show every you know once a show a month that's making only 100 150 bucks from that one weird little bar show or cafe show and if band finances are tight sometimes you have to get creative because i've seen bands over the years like I, i briefly played in a band who one of the people in the band worked at a daycare center And we'd all bring our like the daycare would close, and we'd show with our with our instruments and rehearse in the daycare center. Oh my God. <laughs> and uh, I've heard of yeah people like rehearsing in businesses, like oh my like oh my, I work at a mechanic shop, and so like after the mechanics close, they set up all their their instruments and play in like you know after hours businesses and stuff because they can do it for free or cheap because they they know someone who knows someone. But these connections are kind of a stroke of luck which is why Buzzard and The Railhouse are offering a really affordable space for bands on a budget. But there's a catch. The Railhouse can only provide this service if it remains semi-secretive. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's soundproof pretty well. Like we, um, uh, we have a friend who's worked as a sound tech, so he just um, sold us for really cheap a bunch of like soundproofing materials, like the stuff you'd see in a recording studio or in a commercial jam space on the walls. Um, so we put a lot of that stuff up. Um, and then, so we're in Saanich. Like yeah. UVic and all that is in Saanich, not Victoria technically. Yeah. And in Victoria, I think it's, you could, you're allowed to make as much noise as you want within reason till about 10. Yeah. On weekends, it's 11. Mm-hmm. Um, in Saanich though, there's no such limit. Like if you're being loud, if you're mowing your lawn for a little bit too long, someone could like call the cops on you. Really? <laughs> yeah. And I think in Oak Bay, it's like even worse. Like it's really harsh in Oak Bay. Like noise bylaws are really um, opposed to those who make noise. Mm-hmm. Um, but to our, um, I, I don't know, we just never had a noise complaint. And one of the bands that were here is a really loud metal band. Mm-hmm. And like I'll come home from work and I'm like, the house is shaking. And the neighbors in the backyard with their kids like throwing the football around and they don't seem to mind. So I'm like, all right, so... Um, but we still try to keep, yeah, even though it's somebody could conceivably call a complaint at any time of the day, we've never had one. These noise bylaws are a curse for musicians looking for housing. They just, they just like a landlord here, so he's like, oh, musician, oh, that's noise, that's trouble, that's like, you know, drinking and partying, which isn't always the case. Not every musician is a scumbag. But uh, yeah, so I, I think as long as they come for the inspections and the house is in good shape, they don't really care what we're doing in it. Like that's ultimately their mo is that we're taking care of their property which um we are it boils down to trust and respect the landlord trusts buzzard not to cause problems for them and so it's on buzzard to make sure that there aren't any hence the secrecy so if if i had someone say like you know like oh like my, my friend of a friend is looking for a rehearsal space and we heard you guys have sundays free i would just for my own just like peace of mind would probably just say no um, because it's like the tragedy of the commons, right? You don't want one person to ruin it for everyone. And the space is pretty cool. It's the first thing you see when you open the front door. 
uh, just a kitchen and then some seating. And then we have um, a like a bunch of uh, like just various like cabinets. And then so typically the guitarists and bass players will bring their own uh, amp or head and then they can just use the cabinet that we have in house. And then we bought like a cheap drum kit. Um, so the drummers can just bring their own cymbals and um, their own kick pedal, their own throne to sit on. And then, um, so the, the drummers that live here don't have to provide our expensive <laughs> boutique drum kits for a bunch of people to hit on every night. Um, and then, yeah, we've got some shelving with a bunch of different, uh, like different types of cables, microphones that the bands can use. Oh, and I'll show you the, the, the other, I guess, relevant. And then also lots of soundproofing materials on the walls. Yeah. So is it foam? Just like hanging? Yeah, it's mainly foam. So we've basically covered up the thinnest parts of the wall with more, like overcompensating with more uh, foam. Right. Um, but I guess the other thing I'll show you is this room, which I could have showed you earlier. Oh, wow. Describe yeah. this to me. So I turn the corner and there's this smallish room that is just filled to the brim with all kinds of instruments, just pyramids of different drums. Uh, that's a bunch of like guitar pedals. Amp stacked to the ceiling. Smaller mixers, probably a couple like small synthesizers are probably in there too. Mixers leaning against walls. Um, and then just like cables, batteries, all the kind of miscellaneous things you would need. It's like a musical equipment Tetris. <laughs> so this is uh, the gear share room. So it's just, it, this. I don't know what this room would even be because I, I mean, knowing Victoria, someone would probably rent this as a bedroom, <laughs> but it's windowless and it's small. And then, so yeah, so it's basically, so if the if there's a musician that doesn't, um, want to bring something every single time, uh, they can put it in here All right. and then kind of fish it out for their jam and then put it back. And then let's say they have a gig on the Friday or the Saturday. You can just send one of us a text. Say, hey, I'm going to be by the house, um, to pick my stuff up. Is anyone home? We say, yep, maybe come and just pick up their gear. So this, I guess would be kind of, um, the, the, like this, you know, donation we charge for people to rehearse here. This is kind of included as a little space to put their extra gear. Okay. And then we put all our gear in here that we don't want people using. And like, is there, this is like a dorky question, but like, is there paperwork or like, do you keep track of what's stored in here in case something goes missing or like someone claims that like something was damaged? Like, um, we don't, but probably should like so far we haven't needed it. Like nothing's gone missing. No one said, "Hey, where the where the f is my blank?" Like yeah. that hasn't happened. No, um, one's, no one's lost their blank. No one's lost their blank. There's also just a bunch of random stuff in there. Is that like a monkey hanging from one of the shelves? There's like, a, there's a monkey. There's um, a pokeball. Do these things have significance, or are they just part of like the bands that bring stuff? I think there there was nowhere better to put them, so that's why they're in here. Um, okay. And also, a lot of all the bands keep their a lot of bands keep their merch in here too. Okay. So we let them store all their shirts and hoodies and stuff. So when they pick up their gear to go to the gig, they can just grab their merch while they're at it. The space has also been personalized with random stuff that was left and slowly incorporated into the room. Uh, there's this Hannah Montana pillow. There's a Stewie plushie um, painting of MF Doom and a Trump-shaped stress ball. So that's fun. This is a multifaceted room in terms of its uses. Yeah, there's a Groucho mask. Well, with a septum piercing because it's Victoria <laughs> <laughs> and everyone has a septum piercing in Victoria yeah I have to get mine I have, think I have like three months to get mine before I get kicked out before you get yeah evicted yeah uh, you get shipped off to Saskatoon or something <laughs> um, Saskatoon the land of no septum of, no septum, of, of p 
pure septums. <laughs> yeah, I guess. What are your plans for like the longevity of the space? Do you plan to move away at any point? And like, if you leave, do you think the space will continue to like kind of serve its purpose? I think it would. I mean, as long as um, at least one of the two people who are currently living here keep living here. I don't. I can't see them being adverse to this space being used the way it is. Um, well, we just signed another lease, so you know, we're going to keep doing it. The Our bands like playing here, and our friends like playing here, too. And um, The future is, is uncertain, but uh, but like un, brightly uncertain, not like, oh, we could get evicted any day now. Like, it's it's not like that's, that's, that's not a concern of anyone's right now. Like, we're taking care of it. The landlord likes us, and our friends like us, so... After the break, I visit the castle. If you like this episode, you might also like an upcoming episode of Full Circle about futurisms called Currently Speaking, a look at Victoria's futures, where visionaries imagine new futures for technology, housing, gender, and more. Yeah, um, it's, I guess it's, it's trickier to be a, especially an amplified musician. Martin definitely sympathizes with the Railhouse musicians. And he thinks that this kind of creative rehearsal space solution speaks more to what the city can do to help its musicians during an affordable housing crisis and how these kinds of spaces can actually benefit the city. There, there is this idea that um, having creative people around has kind of spillover effects uh, that benefit other residents of the city. So it's not just that like, oh, well, people benefit from music. Um, an economist would generally argue that, well, if people benefit from music, they can pay for a ticket to go and hear it. Um, uh, the question is, is there some positive externality here that the market doesn't, um, doesn't uh, c- cater to, that, that the market doesn't supply us? Um, and some people have argued that having creative people like musicians and artists um, in a city actually um, creates spillovers to other people in the city um, through the kind of idea generation that happens. It's rickety, it's brick, it's built in, the, I think, in the 50s, and it looks like it's going to fall down. This is Joe. My name is Joseph LaRue, and I am a songwriter and guitarist and vocalist in a band called Bridal Party, Um, and I play in a handful of other bands as well, in and out, and I also book shows uh, and host events under the moniker Regular Occasion, and that's pretty much it. And Joe is one of the founders of what became known as The Castle. And you go up uh, like a long staircase, and there's an apartment on either side on this second floor. And everything's on this one floor. And the castle is what Joe named the apartment building that he eventually moved into while his musical career was beginning to blossom. It's a bit of a hellhole. But everywhere else um, has at least some natural light, and they're all two bedrooms. Um, and until recently... They're a bit more now, um, but they were, when we moved in, they were all under $1,000, and they were in Chinatown right downtown. Oh, wow. And, yeah, as I said, I moved in with my roommate, Neil, and uh, he had been introduced to that space by a woman named Kat Jeffries, who's an artist who um, does costume design in New York now. So they moved in, and Joe already sensed the potential this building might have. And 
behind us, there was a, a band practicing there called, called Grimwood and then another one called Soft Alarm. Um, and they were in apartment seven. We shared a wall with them. So there's already like people playing drums and making loud music. Right. And the landlord is just like, you know, it's, it's managed by, by a, a local company called Brown Bros, which has a reputation of just being like kind of absent. And this is no exception. Um, and basically like the building is at least how I see it, like too beat up to be renovated properly. It's definitely not earthquake safe. Um, and there's like, you know, like big steel heat registers and everything about it is a bit dated, single pane windows, but everyone gets to do what they want. And when Neil and I lived together, as people moved out of that building, we would just talk to the landlord because we seemed to like get on his good side quickly and ask if our friends could move in. So someone would move out of their apartment and Joe would jump on it. Here's the references. They're a lot like us. He'd be like, sure. And these friends, for the most part, have ties to the local music scene in some way or another. We just, I don't know, we were just kind of like goofy undergrads, like having a, you know, it was kind of like, it wasn't a frat house, but it was just like four guys in two apartments, and we slowly moved more and more of our friends in. So, as more friends start moving in, they start gaining this sense of confidence. They start rehearsing in their living room, they started hosting shows, and it becomes this music hub for the community. You'd have a show in one apartment, and then the people would start spilling out into the hallway, and the band would move into the hallway, and almost the entire floor of the apartment becomes this one big house show, and it seems like everyone who lived there was okay with it, but then the parties just kept getting more and more out of hand. I remember, I think the point for me where I thought this is getting a little bit r ridiculous was... Um... We had a party at my place. I can't remember the circumstances or what was going on. Uh, this would have been like 2016, I think. Um, but um, we were having a show. I think there was some live music in our place. And uh, definitely some of the other people in the building that we weren't as close with had said, like, hey, at least like give us a heads up if you're going to have a party. Um, and I cannot recall if we did or didn't. And if we didn't, I'm not surprised because we were just... I don't know. We were a bit ignorant. Like, I just didn't maybe always realize how much of an effect we were having on our neighbors because sometimes they would participate and they also would throw their own parties and they would have lots of people over and stuff like that. So it felt like a tit for tat. But there, I went into the hallway and maybe an hour before someone had asked me if I had clippers, like, sha like razors for shaving. And uh, there was somebody giving people haircuts in the hallway because there's a, an outlet out there. During the party? Yeah, it was like late. And there was this guy just like shaving people's heads into the hallway. And I was like, I don't know. Maybe this is like, like, this is cool. And like, I'll remember this. But it was just like, uh, that was like the line for me. Where it was like, things have amped up a little. There's people everywhere. There's no such thing as like kicking people out, really. Word had gotten out. And pretty soon after that, the landlord was forced to get involved. And generally speaking, it was like safe and good friends. Um, and as far as I know, nothing ever like really dangerous or tragic like happened at those parties. And they were fairly like spread out. We'd have a few a year. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember emailing my landlord about something totally unrelated. And I was on my way out of the country. I was in, I was on a bus from Portland or from Seattle to Portland and he answered my question and then he gave me a long paragraph that was like hey you gotta stop really? and he had never brought it up before and we talked almost never um but I guess people had just been sending complaints his way like from business oh and from the old folks home and basically from everybody around us 
and and he had just been not telling us and not dealing with it. Joe thinks the final nail in the coffin was in an event called The Good Party. Uh, the event was meant to challenge Rifflandia, a huge branded musical festival that happens in Victoria every summer. And someone living in the castle was like, Hey, can we host a show at your place? And I was going to be away, but I said yes. <laughs> and... Um, and what ended up going on there was like a, a, like a really heavy like noise show. A band called Schoolgirl, which uh, Joe describes as icky pop mixed with a blender. Uh, they ended up playing alongside several other heavy bands. But Joe was in Nanaimo playing a different show. I came back and there was all this gear left in my apartment that the bands didn't bother to take with them because they were going to come get it later, I guess. And um, a, a plastic bag of 50 bagels and two cases of Red Bull that had somehow been a part of this event. And it was like so clear that something terrible had happened. Like wonderful, like a wonderful show, I'm sure. But I'm just, I was like, oh my God, like this is a crime scene. This is a party crime scene. I'm so sorry for what I've done to my neighbors. I should have known. And after that, we didn't have shows for a long time. The castle quieted down and things inevitably started to change as time went on. Core friends that lived at the castle for years either moved in with their significant others or moved on to other projects in other cities. It left Joe feeling anxious. I thought, it's over. Like, the castle's done. And I'm not, I'm not going to be the old guy that stays here as a bunch of other, like, 21-year-olds move in and want to have parties in the hallway. But it wasn't. Susie moved in. Yeah. This is Susie Radishal. People call me Suze. And Suze has been playing music around Victoria for a few years now. My main project is Bridal Party um, with four of my good friends. And then I have a solo project, too, called Sussy. And even though the party days are over, the castle still remains this rock for their band, Bridal Party. Like, the parties are fun to talk about, um, but, you know, if we had 10 parties there, we had 200 rehearsals. The castle plays an important role for the band's history. So important, I think, mainly because it is so hard to find a house or an apartment where you can make noise without pissing every single neighbor in every direction off, you know? So, yeah, it's for, it's been like the gathering place of bridal party for about three years, I think, which is very special. That's the thing about houses that become musical hubs. They play such an important role for every band that uses them. But at the end of the day, or in the castle's case, end of the show or rehearsal, it's a home for people who live there. And it's such a fine line between opening up the doors to share the space with the people who can use it and closing them to keep the peace and ultimately continue the bridal party rehearsals. But it could have gone the other way, and Suze has actually lived in a place where it did. It's called the Fern House. Yeah, it was definitely quite communal. We had a lot of friends who would just stop by to do their work in the living room or something, which was really lovely, but also a bit frustrating sometimes when mm-hmm. you wanted your private space. I definitely fa- found that I, I'm not the kind of person who can live a really long time in a big house with noise all the time. I like my space a bit more, but it was so wonderful because I met so many lovely people and 
we had so many house shows and just lots of, we just played a lot of music and learned from each other. So it's actually described these shows and it seems like they were a lot of fun for everyone involved. They'd have like two stages. There's one in the basement that we covered with tinfoil to make it look cool. I don't know, some sort of Andy, Andy Warhol you're, vibe. You're... Yeah, we'd have a stage in the living room or stage, just a clear space on the floor. Yeah. And they would get pretty, pretty rowdy. It was fun. The Fern House also slowed down. It's actually where Joe lives now, but sadly it won't be for much longer. The Fern House is being rent evicted in the fall, and this is always a possibility for these old houses, especially for the castle. It's always a worry, I think, for anyone living in an older building downtown, because mm-hmm. you just hear of all these development proposals coming up. Um, yeah. And who knows? You never, I feel like you don't, as a renter, you don't really have very much control over what your house is doing or over what people are going to do with your home. Despite the constant fear of potentially losing the castle, Seuss is actually pretty optimistic about its future. I hope to live here for a few years for sure. Mm -hmm. I hope, I don't know, I think it'll stay relatively the same same as long as people are handing it off to other like-minded people. Mm -hmm. Um, Like people who love the arts and love the music and like to be in like a, a I don't know, social, very social environment. It's hard to foresee it though. Yeah. I think it'll stay the same as long as no, not too many people move away from Victoria. But it'd be great to pass down, you know? I considered going under in the tub a sinking slumber but melodrama freezes when the tub runs cold So I washed my face with my roommate's soap and I got into a clean bathrobe I put my head under a pillow for a while Here's Martin again. Well, I mean, yes, it relates, and what they're doing is taking, taking it a step further, I think. So clustering happens naturally to some extent in that if... If an area develops a, um, a reputation as having a good music scene, then other music, uh, other musicians are going to flock to that area. But what these people are, and, and that will happen in an uncoordinated fashion, um, you know, somewhat randomly, and uh, it'll be kind of difficult to forecast where it happens and difficult to make it happen. What these people sound like they're doing is they're actually trying to, f- trying to, co- they're trying to solve the coordination problem. So they're trying to actually um, exert a little bit of influence to make the cluster happen in a particular spot. And presumably their hope, um, I mean, maybe they just want to live close to their friends, but maybe their hope is actually to create a music scene in this part of, in this particular neighborhood mm-hmm. in town. Uh, if they were to pull that off, that'd be really cool. The bottom line is that all musicians struggle in one way or another. But part of being a musician or being in charge of musicians is being able to overcome those struggles. Whether you've lost your home of the last 75 years or you're just trying to create one. Ooh, well, swimming is the clothes. 
This episode of All Access was produced by Nicola Watts with help from Matthew Glenn, Glenn S., and Andrew Hines. Our executive producer is Mary Decker, and we'd like to thank our guests Martin Farnham, Suze Radishal, Joe LaRue, and Buzzard. All access would now be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada and UVic Student Wars and Financial Aid. If you like what you heard, tune in next week and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm so glad the pool is free. I love okay. this. Glasses are coming off. I'm frazzled. Hey. Give me your ear. Let's uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. Hi, my name is Nicola Watts, and I am the producer of All Access here at CFPB. I have for a long time really enjoyed listening to podcasts, but I never really knew what went into the production of a podcast. And I've learned the answer to that which is a lot. A lot goes into making podcasts. I find that podcasting is this really interesting forum where people who have creative minds really fit well. People who have an ear for music and audio art, people who have creative visions. But it's also a really good place for people like me. I am an engineering student. I feel like I really love logical, linear thinking, and I like being able to organize and kind of work on puzzles and problem solve. Podcasting and creating a podcast really lends itself to these skills. Making a podcast, especially under such a tight timeline like we had, required planning ahead, working with all of these converging timelines and trying to stay on top of what seemed like an increasingly impossible task. But I'm really proud to say that we've made something amazing. Cool.